Part 1 Mariel News Headlines from Year 2120 U.S. President declares nuclear strikes imminent, nuclear plants targeted. Riots in the streets as U.S. dollar inflates. Toll estimated in the billions globally as nuclear winter sets in. Massive electricity rations in place due to supply shortage. Chapter 1 Two years prior, spring, year 2198 You should come tomorrow night, Ari said casually, head tilted down as she focused on the smudge staining the hem of an old shirt, hands deftly working the soap into the fabric. My own hands were numb with cold as I plunged my laundry in the creek and rang the sopping mess over and over until the suds stopped floating out toward the center of the stream. No offense, Ari, but those meetings are really not my thing. Unrest for the revolution and all that. It's just not my speed. Remember last time? I made a half-grimace that was only half-joking. Ari rolled her eyes. I didn't even need to see my best friend's face to know she'd done it. So one creep gets a little too handsy, and you abandon the whole effort? It's not that I don't care. I paused in my rinsing and leveled my eyes on her. Damn it! Ari exclaimed unexpectedly. She brought her hands out of the water in time for me to see blood blossoming on the back of her hand. You all right? I asked, setting my wet bundle aside and scrambling down the rock fall that separated us. Ari was examining the injury. A long but shallow gash had opened on the back of her hand, which I took gingerly to look closer. What was it? Something sharp on the, the bottom. I don't know, Ari said tightly. I flicked my eyes up and met hers, trying to keep my features carefully neutral. Releasing her hand, I pulled her sopping clothes from the creek and started to gently run my fingers through the silt where she was working. The water, murky from so much disturbance, glittered as tiny silt particles swirled around my forearm. After a few moments of searching... My fingers grazed the sharp edge of an unbroken bottle. Got it, I said with relief, dumping out the sludge from my find and holding it up to the light. I'm sure it will be fine, I added, but you should go get it cleaned. Ari nodded, but she was not as good at concealing her nerves, and I could tell she was still anxious. You go on ahead, I'll bring our stuff, I said, trying to sound encouraging. Ari swallowed and nodded again but still wouldn't leave. Ari, Pierce was playing in dry dirt and he was much smaller than you, I said more sharply than I intended, not wanting to remember the young boy from town who had scraped his leg on an old buried tea post. His injury had been minor, but a week later he had suffocated to death while Bannon, the town physician, and the boy's mother had sat by helplessly and watched. What difference does size make? Ari said through her teeth. She looked like she was about to cry. I hauled her gently to her feet and gave her a slight shove in the direction of town. Just go get it cleaned, I said to her back. She cradled her hand gingerly, as if being gentle would slow the chance of any infection. Swallowing my own anxiety, I scrambled back up the boulders to throw my still wet clothes back in my basket. I heaved the awkward load to my hip and set off after Ari, 
The hard-packed clay of the path barely showed my footsteps, and even though the first hints of green grass were beginning to show from beneath the blanket of last year's saescence, the world still looked barren and gray. I crested the creek bank and looked across the field separating me from the town outskirts and my family's small house. It wasn't much to look at, and I felt my body tense as I drew closer. I approached from the side, where there were no windows, and I hefted the heavy basket over the fence that surrounded the garden. As the basket fell with a thump, I waited, holding my breath, to see if I'd been spotted. When silence prevailed, I slunk back through the field until I was far enough away to circumvent my house undetected and work my way into town. My shirt was damp from where I'd pressed the wet basket against my waist, and the cold set in quickly. I overcame the chill by moving from a walk to a slow jog. I found Ari at Bandon's house, where she was perched on his work table, flirting shamelessly with Bandon's son, Kyle. Kyle, his cheeks flushed from the attention, was sitting in a chair beside her. He was trying for a relaxed slouch, but he jerked at my knock on the doorframe. Hey, Kyle, I greeted with a knowing smile. Good morning, Bandon, I added with a nod to the older man. If ever there was a gentleman in Buckhorn Canyon, Bannon was it, with his neatly pressed shirt tucked into very carefully mended slacks and his silver hair combed just so. Bannon gave me a polite smile, and Kyle coughed to cover his awkwardness. The good doctor here says no biggie, Ari said brightly, holding up her hand to show me. Her skin was yellowed from the iodine disinfectant, and Bannon had smeared a thick paste over the scratch. Bannon took her hand gently as I watched, wrapping a bandage around her hand and over the smear. Now you keep this clean and dry for at least a couple of days, Bannon said seriously. The next shipment doesn't arrive for weeks, and there's nothing I can do for you if that gets infected. We all fell into a tense silence. Bannon, I knew, had taken Pierce's death personally. Even taking the rare step of asking Burgess, our territory representative, if there were any openings available in the delegation set to visit Denver this summer. Of course there were openings available. The delegation was a joke. A group of northerners made the trip to Denver once a year, armed with a carefully compiled list of appeals to present to the commission. It was a lame, fruitless attempt at democracy. But that didn't stop Burgess from organizing the trip every year. We must strive for change. We must maintain hope that our voices, consistent and firm, will be heard. Burgess had said once. They were all naive. Is there anything I can do to help? I asked Bannon as he turned to wipe his hands on a clean cloth. I could go pick up some medicines or whatever if you need them that badly. Bannon had started to shake his head before I'd finished my sentence. Thank you, my dear, but it's a supply issue, not a demand issue. You'd not be able to legally find what I need even if you did go. I raised an eyebrow. Legally? Absolutely not, Mariel. He looked more exasperated than angry. A young woman like you? That's a fantastic way to get yourself killed, or worse. You know, the cartels have their own set of rules that very well make our justice system seem reasonable. I opened my mouth to argue, but Bannon cut me off. It's all right. Spring growth is upon us. I will be able to supplement with forage soon, don't you fret. He patted my hand in a patronizing sort of way that made me want to roll my eyes. I breathed through my nose and looked again at Ari, who was whispering with Kyle. 
I suspected she was telling him about the same meeting we'd discussed earlier. Seeing she no longer needed me, and that Bannon was not going to tell me what supplies he needed so badly, I took my leave of the group and stepped out into the sunshine. The cool of the morning was dissipating, and I suspected the afternoon would be a warm one. If I could finish with the laundry, I'd have time to check my route before nightfall. I eased through the garden gate to my yard as quietly as I could, holding the latch as it fell so as to not announce my presence. But I'd only taken one step away from the gate before... Mariel? I closed my eyes and grimaced. My mother. Short and squat, like the house over which she held court. My mother's outlook on life strongly reflected her upbringing. Dire and dour. The only time my mother ever felt a real sense of security in her four decades on earth was when she married my father, and even then, only when he was home, which was not often. As an effective and efficient supervisor, my father's number came up far more often than his peers to manage the work crews on the flats. It was supposedly a lottery, to ensure equal time for everyone, but Ari's father also managed work crews, and he was home bumming around more often than he was working. It would have been worth it if working more brought more money, but no. Father made the same no matter how much he worked, and Mother had one more reason to be frustrated with the world. Where have you been, Mariel? She asked tartly, not out of concern for my safety, but annoyance that her routine was disrupted. Ariana got cut in the creek. I was just making sure she was all right, I argued, undeterred by her sour mood. I'm finishing the hanging right now. Mother pursed her lips, but I brushed past her before she could find another thing to criticize. The clothes were frigid from sitting in the shade of the fence for the past hour. I pulled the items out one by one, snapping them to loosen the wrinkles and draping them over the rope stretching from the eave of the house to a post in the yard. While I worked, I thought about Ari's invitation. Burgess didn't discourage young people from getting involved politically. In fact, quite the opposite. I wondered if Burgess was ever frustrated that his own son didn't partake more often. But then, perhaps Burgess didn't realize just how far these young radicals had gone in their plotting, and that was why Fionn had stopped attending. It was true that we all longed for a little more leash to live our lives, but the group leading the meetings seemed only concerned with stirring up trouble, and I suspected Ari was drawn to their boldness, the excitement of violence not yet attempted. For my own part, I was no martyr. Besides, I had my own ways of rebelling. If my mother knew about the small cash, she would no doubt roll her eyes at me and tell me to buy a new dress or some rouge for my cheeks. I wrapped the coins carefully in a piece of oiled cloth and tucked them beneath the cairn of stones I used to mark my hiding spot. To me, the money meant freedom. Mother would have exchanged the word husband for money and the word safety for freedom. I ruffled some leaves around the stones to make it look more natural and stood up, brushing dirt from my pants. I still had a ways to go before reaching my goal. Accounting for bribe money... Supplies and contingencies, not to mention the actual costs of the land and cabin in northern Wyoming. I was only halfway there. At the rate I was going, it would take another year to save enough for real independence. 
I continued arguing with my mother silently in my head as I made my way to the creek, following a faint deer trail through the brush. As I'd predicted, the afternoon was warm, and I wasn't the only one taking advantage of the fine day to be productive. A swarm of barn swallows was making very noisy progress building their mud nests under the dilapidated remains of a concrete bridge, swooping up in a fluster as I passed and arcing through the air like a volley of arrows. I was approaching my first snare when I heard someone cursing loudly from behind a dense cluster of choke cherries up ahead. I pushed through the branches to find Fionn himself sputtering and attempting to untangle his boot from the springe. I crossed my arms over my chest and cocked a knee. What are you doing? Fion, startled, fell hard, still clutching his boot and snared in the cord. He cursed again. What does it look like I'm doing? He snapped, then catching sight of me relaxed. Ruining my perfectly good trap? I replied smoothly, not yet moving to help him. He gave up on the snare and rolled onto his back, looking up at me. He said, Your trap? Mm-hmm. His eyes were suddenly alight with amusement. I braced, readying myself for his teasing, but instead he just looked down at his boot. Impressive. Don't patronize me, I said sharply, surprised at my defensiveness. He held up a hand, placating. I'm not. I'm complimenting you. I huffed, but knelt beside him, trying myself to undo the snare. He made a proper tangle of the loops, and in the end, I pulled my knife from my belt to cut him free. With the loose cords of the useless trap dangling from one hand, I reached down to help him with the other. He was considerably bigger than me, and took my offered hand with a grin, white teeth flashing. Unbalanced from his weight, I stumbled slightly, and he steadied me with a hand on my arm. I didn't know you were a trapper, Fionn said, stepping away to brush off his pants and straighten his jacket. I'm not a trapper, I replied, trying not to think about the feel of his calloused hand. It's just something I've been doing, you know, on the side. My face heated, to my annoyance. You have some leaves stuck in your hair, I added, half reaching to pluck them out, then pulling my hand away. Fion roughly tousled his hair, sending bits of debris floating around us. Okay, then, he said eyeing me carefully, trying to judge my tone. Humor still lingered in his eyes. We hardly see you these days, he added conversationally. I wanted to say something witty or clever. I wanted to have a really romantic and intriguing reason for my absence. But I could hardly tell him the truth, and I didn't want to lie. When the silence stretched too long, I just frowned and shrugged. I heard about Ari's hand, Fionn tried again, after an awkwardly long pause. She'll be fine. It, it wasn't deep. Well, that's good, he said. He looked at me expectantly, waiting for me to elaborate. Instead, I shoved my hands in my pockets and rocked back on my heels, wishing I could meet his eyes without feeling so nervous. Well, I guess I'll be on my way, he said, but still lingered a moment longer, drawing out the tense silence a little further. When I still couldn't manage a better reply, he gestured with his chin back toward town. I assume this direction is free of more snares? I nodded. He nodded, too. Okay, well... I scuffed my boot on a rock at my feet. 
See you around, Mare. Yeah, sounds good, I managed, trying to mimic his casual tone. As he left to make his way back along the path through the scrub oak that would lead to Old Buckhorn Road, I tried not to notice the way his shirt stretched over his broad shoulders, or how his hair curled at his collar, or how the early spring sun had already bronzed the backs of his arms. It was with some surprise that I realized that he'd been right. We hadn't actually spoken face-to-face in months. When he was out of sight, I let my face lift skyward and sighed, frustrated that I had ruined a perfectly good trap and the conversation in two short minutes. Shoving the cords in my pocket, I continued my trail, feeling on one hand embarrassed and disappointed, and on the other hand, that it was for the best. I'd already decided to run away. Nurturing ties to this place would do nothing but hold me back. The following afternoon, Fionn was waiting at the creekside ready to be out all day by the looks of his sturdy, well-worn boots and day-pack slung across his shoulder. I paused when I saw him sitting there, a small thrill going through me, followed by irritation. What are you doing here? I asked sharply, then mentally reminded myself how badly I'd felt yesterday after being so rude. Thought you might like some help with your traps, he replied with the beginnings of a cocky smirk. He didn't seem at all deterred by my tone this time. Surely you have better things to do today, I said, fidgeting with my own pack strap. Like what? Attend one of Ari's not-so-secret meetings? His smile stretched a little wider. Today I'm all yours. Then he held out a length of new cord. For you. I held up my hand dismissively. You didn't have to do that. It was an accident. He just shrugged and tossed the cord at me, where it looped absurdly over my head and shoulders. It was brown, made of a fine nylon, the likes of which were rarely seen in these parts. Thank you, I murmured, collecting the cords neatly and placing it in my pack. Why are you really here, Fionn? I then asked, leveling my eyes on him again. Fionn feigned a hurt look. Do I need a reason to spend a beautiful afternoon with a beautiful girl? I felt blood rise in my cheeks, but I rolled my eyes at him. Fine, I said, with as much irritation as I could muster, setting off upstream. But only if you cut the bullshit. And only if you can keep up. I challenged over my shoulder, keeping my burning face looking away. I could feel his grin at my back as he fell into step behind me. Together we worked our way up the rugged mountainside, my thighs burning on the steep grade, but I kept a vigorous pace as we scrambled down into the ravines that scored the mountainside like wrinkles of fabric, and scaled the far sides, using sparse clumps of grass or twiggy brush for our handholds. We were traversing a particularly steep slope when I heard Fionn's sharp intake of breath from behind me, right before the whooshing sound of a person slipping accented by the scraping and clattering of a body sliding down a gravelly slope. By the time I turned around, all I could see was a cloud of dust and broken branches thirty feet from where I stood. Y'all right? I called down, 
attempting not to sound panicked while trying myself to navigate the incline. I passed the place where the soft wall of loose stones had given way beneath Fionn's foot, and followed the track his body had made to the ravine floor. Ugh. I heard him moan. Fionn, are you alright? I asked more urgently, taking the last ten feet with a leap and landing in a crouch. Just a damaged ego, he mumbled as I finally pushed my way through the bramble to where he lay. He'd managed to raise himself up to a seated position. I tossed my bag aside and knelt at his side. Are you sure? I pressed. Fionn turned his wrists and bent his knees. I'm fine, really. He paused mid-sentence. Hey, Mare, check this out, he said with a touch of excitement in his voice. He was focusing on an object partially uncovered in the sand by his boot. I reached over him and brushed off the object. It was a box of cigarettes. The box was wrinkled from being damp, and the ink slightly faded from the sun, but not enough to have been here longer than a couple of weeks. While I was studying the carton, Fionn had gotten to his feet and was studying the earth around us with the eye of a seasoned tracker, then angled his head up to study the ravine walls. A patrol of some kind, Fionn said definitely. I wonder if my father knows, he added more to himself than to me. But there's nothing up here, I countered. We're halfway to Stove Prairie. There's nothing but wilderness. Fionn shook his head, as if to say he were unsure, yet still looked thoughtful. You've never seen anyone up here before? Oh, never, I said with a shrug. No other hunters or trappers? No, no one. It's always just me this high up. Why? What are you thinking? I'm thinking that traversing these ravines is not for the faint of heart. Someone went through a lot of trouble to come up here. That sounds sinister, I said, trying for lightness, and trying to overcome the knot of anxiety that had settled in my stomach. Come on, Fionn said distractedly, still scanning the ridge above us. Let's go. With a tilt of his head, he invited me to go first up the steep ravine wall. Fionn shoved the pack of cigarettes in his pack and cinched the straps. I slowed my pace a little in case Fionn was masking some bruises he didn't want me to know about, but he seemed physically fine as we crested the ravine lip and continued my route. Disturbed by the discovery, I was more interested in getting back to the safety of town than clearing the remaining traps, but it so happened that my route was also the most direct route home. It was dusk by the time we reached Old Buckhorn Road and were able to make our way toward town, the asphalt road, all but decomposed beneath our feet, had opportunistic weeds already pushing through its gaps despite the early season. The blue mustard would bloom soon, and the valley would be painted in carefree shades of purple, a frivolous but oddly uplifting thought at the moment. I had a few fresh pelts tied to my bag, and despite the unwelcome news of strangers in our territory, felt surprisingly cheerful about how the day had gone. Fionn's mood had lightened, too. Fionn's mood, too, had lightened as we'd walked, but I could sense an underlying tension running beneath our casual conversation. At my front gate, even that talk died away, and Fionn shoved his hands in his pockets. Are you going to tell your father about what we found? 
I blurted, broaching the subject again for the first time in hours. He should know, yeah. An unscheduled patrol goes against the treaty. He's not going to be happy. I nodded. It was really none of my business, and I didn't want to pry. Despite Fionn's apparent willingness to tell me. You'll... you'll take care, being up there, he said awkwardly. He stated it more like a command than a question, and I snorted. I can take care of myself, I said a little tartly. He opened his mouth to speak again, but I cut him off. I'll see you later, I said shortly, fumbling with the gate latch. And thank you. I threw in that last bit for good measure. He shut his mouth with a small smile and nodded, then looked down at his feet for a moment as if gathering his thoughts. I had gotten hold of the latch by then and eased backwards through the gate. Would he say more? Should I? But he just looked up at me again, smile still firmly in place. Good night then, Mariel. And without waiting for my reply, he turned and walked into the night.